in Christ's love and peace, fellow redeemed. If you're hosting a Christmas gathering for the family, how should it really go? Should the Christmas event be pulled off the way the host wants it to or the way the guests want it to? I would guess it's the way the host would want it to. After all, he and she are the ones doing all the work and spending most of the money. So are we, in God's Christmas celebrations, are we the host or the guest? Of course, we're the guest. And so Christmas should really be pulled off the way that God wants it to. And he's been very clear in his word how he wants it to be pulled off. We as humans tend to magnify things. We, we uh, inflate anything that's human in a story. We get excited about human prowess. What God does is deflate. He, he put Jesus in a manger. He put Jesus in a little town called Bethlehem. Last week, we talked a lot about the prophecy about Jesus being born of a virgin girl. Today, we're going to talk about being born in the little town of Bethlehem, just six miles south of Jerusalem, a place that God said, when I pull off the first Christmas, that's where it's going to happen. He put it right there in his word as the host. And we get great spiritual insight for our own spiritual growth if we look at it the way God wants us to look at it. And so we're going to do our best. We're going to look at Micah chapter 5, verses 2 to 5, and we're going we're gonna to meditate on it together. You can see how God is deflating the human side and inflating his love and truth as you see he prophesies about where Jesus is going to be born. In fact, even for Old Testament ears and hearts, it was a, an ironic place for the Christ to be born. You would think rather he'd be born in Samaria, the capital of the north kingdom, Israel, or in Jerusalem, the kingdom of the south, and where the temple was, and where all the think tank of Israel existed, and even the king, Herod. But listen to what God says through Micah. It's Micah 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Let me talk to you just a little bit about the literary context of Micah's writings. Micah was a prophet for Israel in the 700s. The northern kingdom was still in existence, but just barely. The big bully on the block was Assyria, and they were breathing down on everyone who lived in that holy land. The northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. Micah was a prophet for that southern kingdom Judah. But he is telling everyone, both Israel and Judah, that their Messiah, their Christ someday, would be born down in Judah in Bethlehem. He's saying that he's going to be born from Bethlehem, which is where the clan of Ephrathah was, which was a clan so small, it didn't even merit mention in the book of Joshua when Joshua divvied up the land and mentioned all the clans and what their borders would be. This clan was too small to even be mentioned. But now, because God's deflating the human side and inflating his love and truth as God becoming man, now he picks this very small town. It's the town of Bethlehem. The place of, first of all, of Boaz and Ruth, and they are ancestors of David, who was born in Bethlehem as well. 
And Mary and Joseph would later go to Bethlehem, as you heard me read about in Matthew's gospel, just like Micah said. But just look at how God is doing this. He's, he's choosing a very small place. Maybe Bethlehem had 200 to 300 people normally as a village. Of course, during the Roman census of Mary and Joseph's day, maybe it burgeoned to 1,200 or 3,000 people. But still, it wasn't, it wasn't a populous place. It was out of the way in regard to Judah and Israel's history. But that's where God wanted his Christ to be born. Because God is saying, I love everyone the same, even the least. I'll show you by choosing the least of the clans of Judah and the, and the least village among the clans. That's where my son will be born for all people. And that's from where he went and got the shepherds around the least clan to see the Christ first. I want to point out just a, a little phrase that's in this first verse that we read. It's Micah chapter 5, verse 2. I want you to see something here. God says, You, Bethlehem, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel. Come for me. Who's the me? The me is God the Father. God the Father is telling the prophet, go and speak for me and, and, and speak to Bethlehem and say, out of you will come one for me, God the Father, who will be ruler over Israel. I want you to notice, even though it's a, a veiled reference, what God the Father is saying is the same thing that he said at Jesus' baptism. Jesus was perfect and he did not need the forgiveness that comes through baptism. He said, this is my beloved son, in him I am well pleased because Jesus was being perfectly righteous before the Father. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, The Father loves me because I always do His will. I never sin. In uh, Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Because Jesus was willing to, to empty Himself and take on the form of a human and a servant and, and take the death on the cross for all of us, God is not ashamed to raise Him up and make His name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. Jesus was one for the Father. In Romans, Paul says, Romans 5, he says, God reconciled the world. No, I'm sorry. This is in uh, 2 Corinthians 4. God reconciled the world to himself through Christ. In uh, Revelation chapter 5, when John gets a vision of heaven, all of heaven says, who's worthy to open the scroll in the hand of God the Father? And John wept because no one was worthy until Jesus showed up. And then it says... He is worthy, the lion of the tribe of Judah, because he purchased men for God by sacrificing himself. Here's the point of all these passages in Micah 5 where he says, I'll pick one for me. God the Father, when he put baby Jesus in the manger outside of Bethlehem, put on earth his only begotten son, who would be the one who would reconcile the Father in his justice. He'd always held that in his justice that we sinners needed to be punished. And he had no way of punishing and yet redeeming or keeping us uh, for his own at the same time until Jesus. And so when Jesus was put on earth for the Father, it was the Father's way to reconcile justice and love at the cross of his Son. And it would make God the Father have peace. Isn't that amazing? As you contemplate this, the host of the Christmas celebration says, 
Jesus is my peace. The Father says, Jesus is my peace. He is a ruler over my people for me. Because all the other rulers have disappointed me. But not this one. He is the perfect sacrifice. The Savior. The one worthy to be the shepherd of my people. Now, when you know God the Father is at peace, that's when you can be at peace. Sometimes when you, you uh, are talking to a young person who really messed up, but their parents don't know it yet, and maybe you're an adult in their world, and they're confessing to you, and they're trying to figure out how to straighten all this out, sometimes they will say, my mom and dad are going to kill me. Have you ever heard that or thought that? Sure, we have. Uh, other times when we're thinking about how we've sinned against someone, but they don't know yet, but we have to reveal that, we'll say, we'll say to ourselves, just wait till they find out. We'll think that is the death of that relationship. Sometimes it is for a while because you're dealing with a sinner, but often it's not because they are filled with God's love and truth. But imagine thinking that about God. Droves of people do, and they should be thinking, if God speaks to me or deals with me, I'm going to be in deep trouble. But now here comes the message from Bethlehem. Jesus is the sacrifice that reconciled God. Here's a newsflash. God saw all your sins. He sees the sins of your heart. He knows the grossest and the greatest. And he already dealt with it himself, for himself. He took the sin away so that wall would not be there for him. So he could embrace you in love and still be consistent with his justice by putting it on his son. That's what Jesus means to the Father. But when he means that to the Father, that's what he means to us. Because then he is our peace with God. Everyone knows there is a God, even the atheists. They don't want to admit it. But the Bible says the fool has said in his heart, the committed fool, that there is no God. And we all have a natural knowledge that there is a God and that we are accountable to him. So everyone has a nagging sense of dread. Sometimes it's pushed way back in their psyche that they've got to stand before God in his judgment someday. And sometimes very unwittingly, they will talk about God's judgment for other people and act as if they are above it. But deep down, they know and they can be taught this is real, that you're going to be facing the judgment of God. Isn't it great to know that at the most pure a moment where we admit our sins to ourselves and to God and to others that God is already at peace. That's peace for ourselves. In fact, that's the peace. This gospel, good news, is the peace that enables us to confess to others our sins and get, straight, get it straightened out because now we have peace with God. It's a peace that it is the peace that the angels were singing about when they said to the shepherds, Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. It's true peace. Peace is the feeling and the knowledge that everything's going to be okay or that it is all well right now. That's what peace is. That's what that Hebrew word shalom, peace, means. And the last verse of our reading in chapter 5, I mean chapter 5, verse 5 says, and he will be our peace. So I'm going to read the, the, whole, the rest of the section to you. It's, it's Micah 5, verse 3 and 4, and then the first few words of, of verse 5. God says, Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord 
in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. I want you to think about the, the, the historical context. I told you about Micah talking to God's people and about the enemies that were living to the north of Israel and Judah. Well, those Assyrians did come and wipe out the northern tribes, and then they threatened the southern tribes, but God protected the southern kingdom. And then the Babylonians came and wiped out the Assyrians, and then they hauled off most of the people from the Judah, the southern kingdom, and they hauled them away to Babylon. Then the, the, the uh, Persians took over the world and beat up the Babylonians, and they sent a remnant of people back, Jews, to the Holy Land. They settled in Galilee and in Judea in the south. And the Persians protected them while they built their temple and the wall around their city. And they went through very hard times, though, because they were still vassals to the Persians. And then the Persians got beat up by Alexander the Great and the Greeks. And then the Greeks got beat up by the Romans. And by Jesus' day, when he is born, it's because the Romans are ruling the world and they make everybody go to the city of their origin so they can tax them more astutely. And Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem and under oppression of government after government after government, like this prophecy says, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth to a son. Here Micah speaks of the virgin birth in, and he's alluding to it, just like his contemporary Isaiah, which we looked at last week, said, a virgin will conceive and bear a child. Micah says, we're going to experience hard times. And this is all through the book of Micah. We're going to experience hard times and God's going to discipline us and abandon us to government, 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 government until she gives birth to his son. And then he creates the church and the church lives securely in his love and in his gospel. I'm, I'm just thinking of these passages I just read to you. They should be on the screen. Until, and, and he rules to the ends of the earth and all of the different brothers will come and join the Israelites because the brothers are descendants of Abraham through faith. In the Christ, they are the Gentiles added to their number. There are so many biblical truths intersecting in these verses. Depending on how much knowledge you have of the scriptures will be how much you get out of it and how much carefully you're listening. I'm doing my best to explain it to you, but it is deep and it is wonderful. Here the passage says, I'm going to read it to you again. Jesus will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. You remember what Jesus said before he, he died? It was the night before he died in John's gospel, chapter 14 and 16, he said, Peace I leave with you, not as the world leaves with you, but my peace I give you. In the world you'll have trouble, but in me you'll have peace. And he is our peace and we live securely in him. Do you know what he's saying? We live securely in his promises. Our shepherd who, who killed the justice of God and who killed death and who and took our sins away and promises to be with us till the end of the age. He is our peace with God. He has the power to have peace with ourselves and others. He is our peace about our, how life is going even when it's hard because he's guiding it to make us into his image, to guide us and, and form us into people like him and to take us to heaven. And he has promised he's got heaven prepared for us. And we have peace that everything's going to be well. And all of that is our peace. If we're in a pandemic, if we're in a government that's hard, under a government that's hard, 
if we're in a situation at work that's intolerable, even if in our own family we have great troubles and our health is failing, we have peace in God, Son, Jesus, who is our peace through being our Savior. All of that coming through a message from a little city with a little manger and a little woman and a little man, all diminutives, all deflated down to the smallest so that we in our smallest little situation can have the greatest hope. Isn't that the coolest thing? It was several years ago that I told you a story about our family cat. At Christmas time, uh, he, he, he managed to get himself caught under the garage door. My wife Mary was in the garage and she, let, she pushed the button and the garage door was coming down. It, our garage door, like all garage doors, has the electric sensors. So if something shoots under it, a person, a toddler, a cat, a dog, it, it detects that and it raises back up. Somehow it failed. And just as that door was coming down, that cat got under the door and I went out in the garage 20 minutes after her and it shocked me. I almost jumped out of my skin. There was the cat with his eyes wide open, dead still underneath the garage door. And I thought he had been killed, squished. I raised the door. I ran in the house. His name is Marvin. I said, Marvin is dead. Mary said, Marvin is dead. I said, yeah, the garage door squished him. We ran outside together and Marvin just lay there just like he had been with the door on him. And I rolled him over on his side and he wasn't moving. And then I grabbed him by the nose and held his mouth shut. And I breathed into his nose and I saw his little chest go up and down. And then I stopped and then did it again. And then I saw his tail flicker. And then I heard him go. And he gradually woke up. We were worried about him because he wasn't moving that much. So we took him to the vet. $800 later, the next morning, we got Marvin back with one less of his nine lives. Doctor said he's going to be fine. He'd already cost me $500 two times over by beating up our other cat. Now he cost me $800, but he's fine. He's going to be in our house, and he's still with us today, six years later. Marvin, by grace, living off grace, um, saved by his owners. Um, I asked the doctor at the, the emergency clinic for animals, I said, this is what happened, and he was still, and I breathed into him, and I saw his little chest go up, and I said, just really in a wry way, I said, did I save Marvin's life? She goes, probably not. Most cats go into shock, and then they just wake up later. But I was convinced that I saved him, and I still am, and I want credit for that. It was Christmas time. Remember I told you that? My family laughs at me because I, I want to believe I saved him. I did raise a garage door. So, hey, I saved it. So, Marvin, through my leadership, bought me a present for Christmas that year. I wrapped it up. It was a nice set of hunting knives. And I said, and I hid it under the tree. To Dad from Marvin, thank you for saving my life. <laughs> Nobody saw it until it was time to pass out the packages. And then I get a present from Marvin. And they all groaned and laughed. Well, now Marvin buys me a present every year because Marvin is so grateful and it gets wrapped and unwrapped at Christmas time. I know it's funny. I want it to be funny, but it also emphasizes for me the idea of living in gratitude because Marvin, for me, represents me before God. And I'm so grateful that God has saved me through his son, Jesus Christ, that I want to give God the gift of my life back to Him. And I 
know that it's true for every Christian. That we, when we're healthy spiritually and we're worshiping the Christ the way that he intends, we have a deep sense of gratitude and our whole life is a gift back to him. So when I think about Marvin giving me a gift, I think about Donald giving Jesus and the Father a gift. That's because he's our peace. When someone gives you peace in your life, you want to give them peace back. In fact, the, the term shalom, uh, peace to you, is a greeting in Jewish culture. It, uh, it still is, but in Jesus' ancient day, he says it when he rises from the dead, peace to you, and they would say peace back to him. Well, God says to us in Micah 5, he will be my peace and he will be your peace. Peace to you. And with our whole life, we say back to God, shalom to you too. Peace.